Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, second-year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, Aaron. Third-year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Saloni Singh. Hi, Saloni. Hi, Aaron. And second-year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hi, Aaron. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Well, on today's show, we're going to talk about combat psychology, and we're happy to have as our guest to help us discuss this, retired Navy SEAL Master Chief Steve Drum. Hi, Steve. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for uh, having me on. Now, during his 27 years of service, he's developed and led high-performance teams in combat at every level and in the most challenging and extreme environments. He was a principal architect of the U.S. Navy's Warrior Toughness Program. As a trainer and consultant, he helps organizations create simple and effective strategies for developing peak-performing leaders and teams. Well, I, well, my first question, and everyone can just jump in whenever they feel like it, but my first question is, when you became a Navy SEAL, what was the most important thing you had to learn and train in yourself? What did you notice about your own psychology that was important to succeed and be a leader? Well, I think there's, you know, and it wasn't one thing. I think it's a developmental journey like we all, as, as we get wiser and older, right? But I think for me, the things that, that I, I would later go on to help talk about in the warrior toughness program towards the twilight of my career were often things that I learned intuitively things such as, you know, we'll talk about mental rehearsal, things like that, such as in how we train with things, uh, premeditation of adversity, they would say in, in, uh, stoic philosophy, but you know, almost like a, uh, stress inoculation, right? Giving yourself introduction to, to stressful situations and really being able to do that enough and be thoughtful enough about that to, to realize how that translates to, to the real thing, to, to the real combat experience. But a lot of it is really, uh, again, discovering, you know, who you are and really being able to unpack and say, I've put a lot of work in, I should be confident with who I am and how I show up and, and, and how I can perform when things get difficult. Now I have heard that, um, when, you know, because, because, you know, I, full disclosure, my dad is a master sergeant in retired master sergeant in the army. And, you know, I would, I, as a kid, I would go to the NCO club and I, you know, I kind of get a, had a feel for folks there, but I have since heard that there can be a tendency, as you progress and as you are, you receive this elite training as a Navy SEAL or just, uh, uh, you know, just regular military training, you start feeling superior. You can f feel superior and, and just above the population because of this uh, elite level training, elite level missions, uh, life and death missions and things like that. Have you experienced that? And is that helpful with training and becoming a leader and the psychology? Of, of of the training that you're kind of develop, developing? Well, I think, and I can't speak for all of it. I can just speak for my community being in Naval Special Warfare uh, and working with other Special Operations Forces units in that one of the things that I, I think we do well is we recognize and respect people that are experts in their craft, meaning we may go out to do some 
some mountaineering training, right? And we'll hire somebody from like Exum Guides. Probably Alan knows knows who that is, right? Exum Guides for, out of uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and they'll come and and you know they they know they're the experts, and so we have to humble ourselves because we're not, we're the novices and we need to learn. And if you can't demonstrate a level of humility uh, to, to realize that you've got a whole host of people that can teach you something, then you're never going to realize that level of optimal performance. And so it's the same thing. I think when we get out and the old days, uh, most uh, special operations guys would go out and they do the contracting piece. They try to do kind of what, what seals do, but, you know, working for a government agency or working for a private organization, right. To, to kind of translate those skills directly. But now because of how we've been more thoughtful about how we transition guys out, out, out of the military, we're a lot better with generalizing a lot of these skills in terms of leadership and, and building high performance teams. Uh, yet we're going to put these people in an organization where they're brand new. They're that new guy at a SEAL team all over again. And I think because of that, because of that thirst for being their best, they want to soak up as much uh, as they can. And so I think to your question more directly, they may come off like at a certain point, I think when if there is, you know, ever the thought that people don't respect the sacrifice that maybe they've done for the country, then they could, you know, come back on them in, in a way that may make them seem like they think that they're better, really. But it's, you know, if you're going to try to tell me what it's like to and, and what I should do and what I shouldn't do uh, in combat on deployment, when you have no experience and you've never carried a gun in harm's way, then, you know, I'm not sure that I really am going to take that lightly. Right. That, that makes sense, Steve. I feel like there's, yeah, it, it's such a public field. Um, and, and okay. So first off, uh, before I ask, th- thank you for your, your uh, 27 years of service. Um, and, and I think, you know, Aaron's question is, so we're talking about combat psychology and Aaron's question is kind of the perfect jump off point. Um, sort of what did you have to do to get into that combat psychology? And could you tell us a little bit about your career and sort of like how your combat psychology developed along the way or, um, or how, just how you developed along the way and kind of what the different, what did you do? What were the milestones? Give us a few minutes on that. Okay, sure. So the long and short of it is I joined the Navy right out of high school, wanted to be a SEAL. My math was horrendous. So I actually missed the prerequisites, you know, in terms of the score on the the military test. And so I ended up actually working as like a Navy plumber on fast attack submarines up in Groton, Connecticut, uh, where I did that for two years you know, kind of disheartening, right? When you're the younger you are, like, you know, those periods of time, they, they seem like they're a really long time. But now as you get older, right, my age, like two years is like the blink of an eye. Uh, and, and so I ended up there, but I fell in with a good mentor, a former SEAL that really was like, hey, I'm going to train you guys up, whoever wants to go and, and mentor you and coach you. And, and that's what I did. And I showed up uh, for, for Bud's training in 1995 and it was lucky enough, fortunate enough to not get hurt and make it through uh, – first time through a lot of guys get hurt and they have to repeat. And, but I made it through the first time, showed up at my first SEAL team in 1996. And between 96, 96 and 2001, you know, we did a lot of training. 
right? And we basically played war a lot, right? It was really essentially what it is. And we did some real world operations. There were reconnaissance missions. There were some ship assault, shipboarding operations, but it wasn't really until my first uh, deployment to Iraq uh, where I got my first real taste of combat. And, and you, you ask most people, they would, when they know that they're in a combat role and they're expected to fight the enemy, they probably always wonder, right? How am I going to measure up? They always wonder, am I going to, you, you know, am I going to rise to that challenge? when the bullets are flying and I was probably no different in, in, you know, experiences vary. Right. So some people, their combat, my first real combat, when I really had people, not just rounds going over my head, but when people were really shooting at me, grenades, machine gun fire, you know, my first real time, it was like full benefit, as we would say, full exposure. And, and something very interesting to me happened. I actually kind of had a flashback of training, and I remembered when we would do all this urban warfare training in these mock cities where they would do so many things to stimulate us, to stress us out. They would have like these uh, simulated explosions. There'd be machine gun fire and smoke and people yelling, the instructors screaming at you, uh, complete chaos. And that exposure often enough and deliberate enough, meaning like it was regulated carefully so you could still really be stressed, push you to the edge where you're completely like, you know, just lose everything and pull you back. Their ability to regulate that and inject that stress in a thoughtful manner really helped me adapt to those situations. So I'm back there on that rooftop where I'm getting shot at and I make that connection and I go and I, you know, I had a level of confidence, right? I, you know, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do next but I did know that I had been well-prepared and my sniper teammate on that rooftop, he was well-prepared and we're going to figure this thing out and we're going to get out of there. So I think it's definitely about how we train. Right. And, and that was really my, my journey. Now, you know, I got done that first uh, combat operation, getting, getting ready. We got out of there and, and the armored vehicles were coming to pick us up. And I remember just having a complete adrenaline dump, Right. Like that level of, you know, that heightened arousal, right. Came with that, that high spike of adrenaline. And I just had that adrenaline dump where I was smoked. Well, you know, as I did it more and more, and after I had that exposure, then subsequent combat operations, I was able to regulate that type of energy, that type of arousal uh, better. I have so many questions about what you said. One of the things i I thought the phrase you used, full benefit, was super interesting. You know, you think of being in combat with all that, everything going on as being very scary and negative, but to, to have full benefit, that's a positive thing. Do you mean, like, you get to use all the things you've, you've learned and, and, like, make full benefit of that? Is that what that means? Actually, so it's it's kind of a sarcastic thing, right? It comes oh, back from okay. our training when when we say, you know, I know that was I, I just slipped out. Of, I know it's going to be lost on everybody, but to uh, to uh, explain that, you know, if you have to go out and let's say we're going to go do some operations, uh, we're going to go out. You guys are going to go out today, and you guys are going to go out tomorrow, right? We go out today, and it's it's Southern California. It's seventy degrees out. Well, then the next day these guys go out and it's like super cold. The waves are horrendous. Oh, well you got full benefit, 
you got you got the the luxury of getting uh the the full experience so to speak i see and, okay oh uh, uh, like full is benefit that- from the training I think that I don't know where it came from. It's just something we always it's one of those those sealisms, right? Those expressions that we have. Is that part of the training, though, is seeing those kinds of challenges in this kind of uh, a kind of jokingly positive way? And that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's how we choose to kind of to respond with with dry humor. Right. And mm-hmm. that's just how we deal deal with a lot of things. Right. And that that kind of helps get you through. Right. The almost like the gallows humor. Right. So sometimes. Another question I had for you was actually related to thanking vets for their service. When I worked at the VA, um, I was told by someone who had worked there a long time, you know, just so you know, some vets don't appreciate being thanked for their service. Can you explain that a little bit? Um, I think, you know, I when somebody says that to me, I make an intentional choice to, to acknowledge that they're trying to be a, a acknowledge my service but i also choose to look at it like i'm glad that you said that because i don't need to be thanked for my service but i like to know that you think of service in that manner as important because as a patriot i want my fellow americans to recognize that 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 is important and so that's how i choose to respond i think and i can't speak for all my veteran friends right my brothers and sisters. But what I can say is maybe some people think that it just comes off as like, oh, I guess that's the PC thing to say now to our veterans, right? Mm-hmm. Almost like, I think one of the things I remember being young and being angry when I would read these stories about how our veterans, our Vietnam veterans were treated when they would get off the plane and uh, spit on. And I would like, you know, be angry about that. And I, and thanks to them, that's not the treatment that we receive because they had to endure that shameful treatment. We now get to benefit from that. And so sometimes I feel like if it's not, if it's not genuine, then it's just kind of like, yeah, whatever. Right. I got it. You think you have to say that to me. Um, And so I I think, you know, maybe and some people are just going to be jerks, right? Some people just are, they're going to be grumpy and they're just going to be negative, right? Because that's just who they are or what they got going on. But uh, I, I like to think if you mean it and I feel like you mean it, then I, I, I appreciate that, that you say that. So many questions. I, this part kind of brought to mind. I, so you've been tw- 27 years. That's, that, that's a good amount of time. So have you noticing any differences in age and generation? So the new folks coming in, are you noticing any difference in attitude or work ethic or focus or um, uh, abilities to receive the training and that kind of thing? And have you had to alter your training methods or techniques? Ooh, Aaron coming in with targeting the millennials. When I'm old, <laughs> uh, old like, look, Alan, an old person has the right <laughs> to complain about the younger generation, and I'm going to yeah, use that. All means. Full benefits here. <laughs> we'll and have I would time. be doing a disservice to all previous uh, generations <laughs> if I didn't take on that mantle of responsibility. <laughs> Absolutely. <right? laughs> well, you know, it, it, we get the that conversations. Like we've had, I've sat in on training where people like they play the old game of like they put a quote on the board and this generation are lazy and entitled. And then it was said like a hundred years ago or whatever. Right. So got it. Right. But, you know, to your question, there are certain things, right. That we do notice in terms of, uh, you know, the tendency to be less, you know, obviously it goes without saying, and it's, it's nobody's fault, right. Technology has dictated that people are going to be, that we're more dependent on it. Right. And so, 
you know, there is that kind of with, with all the answers at your fingertips, right? There is that sense of kind of that immediate gratification type of thing. Right. And that's kind of what we see sometimes is, is that I would see when I, my job, one of my last jobs is to kind of onboard and indoctrinate uh, young men and women that would come in to do these special programs, diver, uh, air rescue, seal, uh, and a couple other ones with high attrition rates. And, and, and you would see in a lot of cases, just like they, they, they put so much into it and they're there for like a week or two. And, and I would really be troubled by their inability to cope. And this is not even the real training, right? This is just boot camp. And I don't like, I never thought boot camp for the Navy was that difficult, right? And the physical standards have kind of been lowered over the years to reflect, you know, the, you know, the sad state of, of uh, our nation's physical fitness at large. But, you know, I would always be troubled by the lack of kind of commitment and the mm. lack of coping skills. And there are there is, and, and you could speak to this probably better than, than I, but I, I, I do remember having conversations with a psych that I worked with, a psychologist, and she was just saying, hey, there is evidence to say that the more like that we are connected, I'm sure we're going to see this after after uh, pandemic, the less meaningful one on one conversations that we have. It, it really affects our ability to kind of regulate our emotions when we're Absolutely. not engaged in the, in the social, uh, you, you know, conversations and interactions. Yeah. So I do see that. I see like a much more difficult time, maybe coping with, with adversity. If you're just joining us, let me, let me just do a little bit. If you're just joining us, you listen to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking to Navy SEAL Master Chief Steve Drum about combat psychology and his experiences with translating that those training techniques to helping develop peak performing leaders and organizations. Alan, you had a question. So, yeah. So, so, and we're going to talk about the, the kind of indoctrination and training that you did um, next episode. So folks stay tuned for that. Um, for this one, I, I wanted to ask you from combat, kind of sticking with the combat psychology thing, something that you had said in one of our former conversations that really stuck in my head was that you get to a point where your fear of being the coward and not having done the right thing in a certain situation outweighs your fear of death. And I wondered, is that an indoctrinated or trained thing? Or does that just come from kind of seeing how, how does that come? There's a number of contributing factors in my estimation. And, and a lot of it's intentional. A lot of it's like, you know, when you go through training, when you have that shared experience, that shared difficulty together, right? That shared adversity, you know, it forges those bonds, right? We call it, you know, the, the brotherhood, right? And there's that expression in the SEAL teams, long live the brotherhood, right? It's that, the, you know, LLTB that, that we often see written at the end of like uh, posts and letters and things like that. Uh, and it's really, you know, fundamental early on in your training, you know, as SEALs, it's you are ultimately dependent upon a couple of things. One is your swim buddy, right? The person you, you never go anywhere without a teammate, a swim buddy, as we call it, you're dependent upon the crew and they're dependent upon you, right? You're also dependent upon processes and tactics and techniques that have been proven, as we say, written in blood. And you become, you have to rely on these things and you know, and there is a level of indoctrination to know that like you, you are not going to get through this training by yourself and you are not going to survive 
in the SEAL teams, your reputation will not survive if you're seen as somebody that's out for themselves. It's somebody that's only self-interested, your own sense of self-preservation. If that's, if that's evident, then you'll be, you, you know, pushed out of the, the community. And so with that in mind, you know, as a SEAL, one of the things, right. And I, I'm trying to remember what famous quote this came from, but some of the things are worse than death. And one of those is the loss of your reputation, right. To some people believe that. And I think that's truly what we, we, we work really, really hard to establish a reputation as someone that can be relied upon uh, when things get hard. And for you to all of a sudden for that to be taken from you or for you to, to lose that is, is very damaging. I think the importance of legacy is profound across cultures, across generations. I have a question to go further into this brotherhood or camaraderie topic, but, you know, after speaking so highly about it, have you seen any consequences, like negative consequences to, to the sense of brotherhood? Well, I think you could look at that and, you know, when you look at negative outcomes in different communities that would be maybe, you know, similar to, to the special operations community, right? There always is that sense of, is it loyalty to our brothers or is it blind loyalty, right? And I feel like sometimes if we don't spend enough time really fleshing out what our, our core values are, right, in terms of what we really stand for as an organization and what, what our standards are in terms of ethics, right, in terms of, of morals, right? If we're not clear on that, if we're not, if we don't work, and, and it's not something we can talk about at the beginning of your training and then just put it away, right? We've got to consistently revisit that because if you frame poor behavior and poor decisions against that, versus against betraying a brother, then, you, you know, that's how that, that integrity survives. But if you lose sight of that and it just becomes about not wanting to, you know, excusing bad behavior and not wanting to rat out your brother, right? Like it's some uh, gang culture, then, then you see where the negative implications are for that type of blind loyalty, right? Which you see, you know, when, in a lot of cases where the military, uh, you know, does bad things. So, so Steve, you went from being a plumber to the highest enlisted rank of the Navy SEALs. Did your loyalty to kind of autonomy ratio have uh, growing pains along the way? I mean, I imagine you're doing a lot more uh, arguing and, and thinking for yourself as a master chief than you are as a plumber. Well, and, that, and that's exactly right. And the plumber piece was just, you know, that was the job before I was a SEAL, right? Once I get in, into the SEAL, it's uh, as a, uh, into the SEAL teams, that's how I'm, I'm seen, right? Uh, you know, again, I'll go back to kind of what comes with wisdom, what comes with experience, and what comes with your own kind of emotional uh, growth as well, right? And, and, you know, you start off and, you know, you always look up, right? You look up at the guys, uh, you know, at the top and be like, they don't, they lost, they lost touch. They don't know what we want. You know, they don't really know how it is. They're sellouts or whatever that is, right? When they make decisions that we don't like. And then of course, one day, inevitably, you know, should you stick around, you're going to be in that position, right? Where you're just like, you know what? I have to make a decision 
and I know a lot more of the facts than, than, than the little old uh, junior ranking version of me did. And so, you know, you've got to be able to along the way have that type of growth where you're able to like really detach and say, that's, that's, that's either in keeping with what we believe as an organization or it's not. And so in many cases, um, not enough people make that distinction um, and end up not being good leaders. Now, uh, can I, uh, I go back to when you were talking about um, the, the camaraderie and the, the power of the group and, and um, upholding a reputation of, of, you know, of sacrificing yourself and, and doing for the group. When, what was the best way that you found when you were in combat, when you were uh, in, you know, in Iraq and uh, someone made a mistake, someone let someone down or someone didn't, didn't fulfill their expectations and it's important for them to be that person to be a contributing member what is the best way to react to that person help that person through it um you know so they don't continue to make mistakes and continue to drag the team down uh well first if it's an ethical breach right then that those are the things that are often unrecoverable right if you do something that displays very poor character that is altogether different than somebody who makes a tactical mistake, depending like, you know, some mistakes, right. Could be so bad that you can't recover and you need to find a different job. But in many cases, it's like, all right, if you've at this point as an individual operator assembled a body of work that shows that you're of good character, that you're a good performer overall, then we're going to address what you did. Maybe you're going to have to feel some pain from it in terms of, of punitive uh, method or, uh, you know, consequences. But overall, let's talk about how we can fix you. Let's talk about how we can move you forward and, and, and go from there. That's a really interesting distinction. It's like some things are easier to teach than others. You know, and, that, and that's right. That's right. Um, again, if, if you demonstrate behavior that doesn't lend itself to being part of the team, it doesn't, you know, display that you are out to make the unit better uh, and you're only interested instead of your own self-interest, then, you know, we can't, we can't really look past that. I think it's interesting, Steve. It's almost like, you know, and I'm also thinking about the age that most people are when they join the military. They're, you know, you're usually quite young. It, does it, is it almost like a second adolescence in some ways? It, I, you know, I guess to, to some people now in, in the SEAL teams and very often now I, I can look at myself and as a 20, you know, I don't remember exactly what age the uh, the frontal cortex is fully formed in an adult male. But, you know, uh, I can look back at myself and just say, hey, man, that was, that was a high degree of immaturity. Um, but, yeah, we also are, are a lot of the, 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 the people that come into the SEAL teams are, are often more are often older than your average uh, person that joins the Navy. They have a lot of college, uh, like maybe at least two years often before they come in, even as an enlisted, not as an officer. Uh, so there's going to be a level of uh, a seasoning. But I think there is right. There is almost kind of a second adolescence sometimes kind of to to, to um, the previous question. Right. In terms of like, hey, I'm at a different position now. Now that I'm actually given some responsibility to lead, I see things in a whole completely different manner. And so that really, that is a level of growth as well, is the responsibility that you're given now. Now that causes you to see the world and see things in a different light and different perspective. 
Um, I'm so sorry. I'm asking so many questions, but I just, I'm so interested in what you have to say. The going back to that camaraderie topic, how does that brotherhood interface with the like growing presence of women or LGBTQ individuals in the military? Uh, and that's, that's very sticky. Again, I always go with the different experiences I have. You understand like the first two years of my Navy journey was working on submarines, uh, mostly men doing that type of job, but uh, some women as well. And then most of my time in the SEAL teams was, was definitely male dominated, right? And we did work with women on the battlefield at times it, when in, in roles that were where we could find really good uses to have women with us. Um, towards the end, I actually was in a position where they had just given the green light to say, all right, we're going to allow women to try out for the special uh, uh, special boat unit uh, position, special like, like SEAL boat drivers and, and SEALs themselves. Previously, the other groups that I was working with at, at the Navy's boot camp, the diver programs and the air rescue programs were already open to women. So it really wasn't really a thing. I know there's a lot of issues when we looked at bringing women in to the SEAL teams and as it related to standards and as it related to the culture and changing that. And I know a lot of people uh, had a lot, have a lot of heartburn with that. And, and right now, I don't think we've actually had a female SEAL graduate training. There may be one in the pipeline, oh, but wow. I don't, we oh, haven't. Yeah. Had I, I had, I think I looked at that before and there, I think there's never been a, yeah <laughs> i'm and laughing that i that i corroborate what you said <laughs> and that'll do it for us here on let's get psych today we talked about combat psychology with navy seal master chief steve drum thank you steve for joining us hey thank you very much for having me it was a fun combo and thank you also to our co-host doctors doctors tosha yamaguchi saloni singh and alan atkins if you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. That's getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. And you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. <laughs>